Christchurch, New Malden, 15th of December 2019, 6.30 service. Ruth Henson speaking in the series, What They Said About the Coming of Jesus, Mary. From Luke 1, looking at what three different people had to say about the coming of Jesus, and we've come to Mary. I wonder how many of you have been to a nativity play already this year. As I'm back working in Key Stage 1 after quite a few years teaching older pupils, I had to dust off my nativity producing credentials and help to marshal the ranks of angels, shepherds, etc. for our nativity last Monday. The cast did really well, although by the time of the grand finale, a few of them had become a little overexcited, so that we did have one shepherd karate kicking an angel. <laughs> and a trio of carol singers who decided to start playing a game of catch with their woolly hats and gloves. You always think of Mary as being one of the key parts in a school nativity play, and yet, have you noticed, she hardly ever has many lines. Working in an all-boys school, our key casting credential for the part of Mary is someone who is actually willing to don the costume. <laughs> And this year, a boy from my class called Adam volunteered, and he looked very fetching in the typically blue outfit. But there were absolutely no lines for Mary in the script of the musical nativity we had chosen. So we asked Adam to think of a line he wanted to say. He thought he might like to say, I'm so tired, while they were en route to Bethlehem. But in the end, he decided upon a line uh, for when Jesus was born in the stable. Oh, my beautiful baby. <laughs> Fortunately, the words of Mary, which we actually have recorded in Luke chapter 1, are rather more profound. <laughs> and yet, I'm not sure that the more evangelical sections of the church have always given them enough attention perhaps worried about a slippery slope to the culture of Mariology seen in other branches of the church. But Mary has a fantastic insight into the coming mission of the baby she is carrying. And if we airbrush her out of the story and disregard her words, we are definitely missing out. This series of sermons is entitled, What They Said About the Coming of Jesus. But in Mary's case, it would be more accurate to say what she sang about the coming of Jesus, because it is indeed a song which Mary goes on to give voice to, the original Christmas song, if you will. I wonder how you feel about Christmas songs. The shops have been playing them for weeks, filling some customers with joy and driving others to distraction. Personally, I love Christmassy music, and when December the 1st comes along, my Christmas playlist on Spotify is my go-to listening. It's rather an eclectic affair. Plenty of Michael Bublé, plenty of John Rutter, and obviously all of the old classics as well. My favourite thing is to play it on shuffle and see what crazy combinations it will come up with. I paused in writing this sermon to see what it would offer me in the space of 10 minutes, and the selection was Blue Christmas by Elvis Presley, followed by John Rutter's Shepherd's Pipe Carol, 
then Andy Williams' version of It's the Most Wonderful Time of the Year, and finally, an amazing a cappella rendition of God Rest Ye Merry Gentlemen by Pentatonics. All that was missing was a bit of buble. But Mary got in there first, penning the original Christmas song during her visit to Elizabeth. We might not be so familiar with it, but it has certainly remained a hit throughout the ages, sung along with Simeon's Nunc Dimittis at many choral services, such as Evensong. It is often referred to by its Latin name, the Magnificat, although I heard about a school pupil who became rather confused about that title. Have you seen those humorous books where wrong exam answers are recorded, with some hilarious examples included? I read in one of those about an exam question which asked, what is the name given to the song sung by Mary during her visit to Elizabeth and Zechariah? To which the answer was given, the Magna Carta. <laughs> Not sure that would have been such a catchy number. I find it pretty remarkable that Mary feels like singing at all when her life has been completely revolutionised by God, choosing her to be the mother of the Messiah. She's probably around 14 years old, not much more than a child. All her plans for married life with Joseph are up in the air. She surely would have felt fear and anxiety about how her family would react, wondering if they will believe her explanation not to mention the possible consequences of public shame and gossip because of her situation. Yet she sings with confidence and insight, with maturity and wisdom beyond her years. Yes, she was just an ordinary young girl, but one with an extraordinary faith. There are clear echoes of Hannah's song at the dedication of Samuel, in fact, teenage Mary was clearly very familiar with the scriptures, as her song is rich in references to Old Testament prophecies and promises, which she has the insight to realise are being fulfilled in the baby growing in her womb. Talking of Christmas songs, one of my absolute favourites is Mary Did You Know? The choir are singing it at Carols by Candlelight next Sunday evening, so you'll get to hear it if you're coming along then. The words of the first verse ask, Mary, did you know that your baby boy would one day walk on water? Mary, did you know that your baby boy would save our sons and daughters? Did you know that your baby boy has come to make you new? This child that you've delivered will soon deliver you. It seems impossible that Mary could have fully grasped all of the aspects of Jesus's mission and ministry, which the song goes on to describe. But the words of the Magnificat demonstrate that she has understood some vital elements. So let's look more closely at the song she sings, which is a song of humble praise, a song of covenant confidence, and a song of revolutionary justice. So firstly, a song of humble praise. Let's hear again Mary's opening words in verses 46 to 49. 
My soul glorifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Saviour, for he has been mindful of the humble state of his servant. From now on, all generations will call me blessed, for the Mighty One has done great things for me. Holy is his name. The very first line of the song is where the name Magnificat is drawn from. The NIV uses the word glorifies, but many translations begin, my soul magnifies the Lord. Think of a magnifying glass, enlarging something and making it appear amplified. Mary wants all the focus and all the glory to go to God, rather than claiming any of the limelight for herself. She is well aware that she is a sinner in need of rescue, describing God as her saviour and also speaks of her circumstances with humility and openness, alluding to her life situation in the words, the humble state of his servant. She does acknowledge Elizabeth's prophecy, which we considered last week, in the words, from now on all generations will call me blessed, but immediately follows that up with a God-focused reason, deflecting the attention from herself for the Mighty One has done great things for me. For Mary, this honour and privilege that she has been chosen for is all about God. He is the reason, the means, the purpose, everything. What about us? If we are chosen for an opportunity or given a special position or role, do we give God all of the glory and seek to magnify him with our words and actions? Or is it too tempting to grasp hold of the recognition and praise for ourselves? As well as being a song of humble praise, the Magnificat is also a song of covenant confidence. Let's hear again verse 50 and verses 54 to 55. His mercy extends to those who fear him from generation to generation. He has helped his servant Israel, remembering to be merciful to Abraham and his descendants forever, just as he promised to our ancestors. We have had a recent focus on the covenant across our services, and Mary picks up that theme again here in her song. The earliest evidence of the covenant promise is found right at the start of Genesis. In chapter 3, verse 15, These are God's words to the serpent. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. Mary's son will be God incarnate, the long promised offspring of the woman who will crush the serpent's head. As she has just been reflecting in the opening verses, This is why she is to be considered blessed, not because she has any special merit in herself, but rather because God chose her as the mother of his son. Mary's bearing of the Christ child is the fulfilment of that very first covenant promise in Genesis 3, 15. And here she points out that God is not trying something new when he sends Jesus to be born of Mary but rather he is acting consistently with his covenantal plan from generations earlier. 
He has always favoured the poor, chosen the younger, and magnified his own strength through human weakness. Mary mentions God's mercy to Abraham and his descendants. Abraham, an old man with no children, was promised by God to be the father of countless descendants. But this would not come through his own strength, but rather by waiting on God's mercy. Then on to Jacob, who received the blessing in the place of his older brother. And later King David, anointed ahead of his older and stronger brothers. And all of these key characters of the covenant were flawed and weak in their own ways, just as God's people, the Israelites, were repeatedly flawed and weak. Yet through all of this, God remained faithful in keeping his covenant and choosing to use damaged and erring people to bring about the salvation of the world. And now he is giving them the promised offspring of the woman, the Messiah and saviour of the world, through a young woman of no consequence, but at the same time, a young woman who understood that the way her life has been turned upside down is all because of the fulfilment of this covenant. I described Mary's song as one of covenant confidence. The words she speaks demonstrate her confidence in God's promises, but this is also reinforced by the grammar of what she says because of the tense she uses to you, she chooses to use as she describes what the Lord has done in the repeated phrases starting, he has, which we will look at more closely in a minute. The tense used in the Greek is the aorist tense, a past tense used to describe a completed action. Such is Mary's confidence in God to fulfill his mission and keep his promises. She uses the aorist tense to claim the fulfillment of those promises, which she states are for Abraham's descendants forever. Do we share Mary's confidence? and her understanding of the covenant? Is our song one of hope and promise, claiming God's mercy upon us forever? Mary's song is one of humble praise and covenant confidence, but it is also a song of revolutionary justice. Let's hear again verses 51 to 53. He has performed mighty deeds with his arm. He has scattered those who are proud in their inmost thoughts. He has brought down rulers from their thrones, but has lifted up the humble. He has filled the hungry with good things, but has sent the rich away empty. Throughout history, people on the margins of society have identified with Mary's powerful song, the longest set of words spoken by a woman in the New Testament, and a poor, young, unmarried, pregnant woman at that. They have been inspired to believe that God can actually bring liberation to their situations. In fact, in the past century or so, at least three different countries have banned the public recitation of the Magnificat. These governments considered the song's message 
to be dangerously subversive. During the British rule of India, the Magnificat was prohibited from being sung in church. In Guatemala in the 1980s, the government decided Mary's words about God's love for the poor were dangerous and revolutionary because they were inspiring the impoverished to believe that change was possible. So public recitation of these words was banned. And in Argentina, a group of mothers used Mary's words on posters after their children disappeared during the so-called Dirty War. So the military junta outlawed any public display of Mary's song. The German theologian Dietrich Bonhoeffer also recognised the revolutionary nature of Mary's song. Before being executed, he spoke these words in a sermon during Advent 1933. The song of Mary is the oldest Advent hymn. It is at once the most passionate, the wildest, one might even say the most revolutionary Advent hymn ever sung. This is not the gentle, tender, dreamy Mary whom we sometimes see in paintings. Alongside the themes of humble praise and covenant confidence, Mary's song speaks of a world turned upside down. Mary understands what Jesus' manifesto will look like, and sure enough, his ministry, especially as described in Luke's Gospel account, is fundamentally concerned with the kind of social justice which Mary articulates in the Magnificat. He begins his ministry by visiting the synagogue in Nazareth and describing his mission in words borrowed from Isaiah. The spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to let the oppressed go free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favour. Then, in the Beatitudes, Jesus presents God's counter-cultural vision for the world. And it's not just in word that Jesus makes this known. No, throughout his earthly ministry, Jesus does the opposite of what many would have expected. He spends time in the company of the marginalised, outcasts and sinners. He touches those considered unclean, lepers, dead bodies, bleeding women. And he calls out the upper echelons of society, such as the Pharisees, for their hypocrisy and legalism. As the last verse of another Christmas song, which we'll be singing next week, O Holy Night, puts it, truly he taught us to love one another. His law is love and his gospel is peace. Chains shall he break for the slave is our brother, and in his name all oppression shall cease. Mary's song of revolutionary justice has brought hope to many, but what about us? Perhaps for us it more provides a deep challenge. We may not be those who are poor, hungry or marginalised, but we need to act upon Mary's words and upon Jesus' mission, which those words foretell, by bringing hope to those who continue to be crushed in a world that thrives 
on exploitation and injustice. In the run-up to the general election, my news feeds on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter were full of fairly vitriolic, angry and divisive posts from people on all different sides of the spectrum of political opinion. Whilst there have still been some such posts since the result was announced, I have been heartened to see an emergence of positive and inspiring posts, urging everyone to play their part in being the change our nation needs, and indeed our planet. These are just two of many posts I've seen in the last couple of days. Elections aren't the only way to make the world better. Support homeless charities. Donate to food banks. Help tree planting schemes. Be kind to the vulnerable. Shop ethically. Defend the environment. Support mental health. Be the change you want to manifest into the world. Or we might rather say, be the change God wants to use you to manifest into the world. And my advice to my friends who voted the same way I did, donate to the food banks, buy a homeless person a coffee or some food or give them a coat. Don't buy that plastic bottle of water. Inform yourself on the way the food that you eat is manufactured. My advice to my friends who voted for the Tories, donate to the food banks, buy a homeless person a coffee or some food or give them a coat. Don't buy that plastic bottle of water. Inform yourself on the way the food that you eat is manufactured. Human well-being is the most important factor in all of our lives on a day-to-day basis. We all have a responsibility to make the world around us a better place, no matter what our political beliefs. As we hear so many different Christmas songs over the coming days, and sing a fair few as well, I hope, let's make sure to be mindful of Mary's words in the original Christmas song, rather than leaving her silent, as in many nativity plays. May she inspire us to join her in singing her song of humble praise, covenant confidence, and revolutionary justice. And not just with our words, but moreover, in the way we live our lives, in the light of the child she bore, and his priorities for our world. Amen.